Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. The world needs to hear your message and your story, so don't deny the world of that gift within you that the universe has given you. Someone out there needs to hear your story because it will support them in feeling hope, inspired, and even transformed. Do you want to discover how I help get my clients out of their own way, show up, and confidently share their message? I would love to extend an invitation to you to join me in my free masterclass, Start Your Own Podcast from Idea to Implementation, on Wednesday, April 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find the registry link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest is Sherry Ashley. She is the founder and owner of Bright Future Recovery. Welcome, Sherry. How are you doing today? Thank you, Brad. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. It is such an honor and a pleasure to have you here. I am so excited and looking forward to jumping in and sharing about all the beautiful light that you put out into the world through the work you do and share a little bit about your story and your journey. So with that being said, let us jump in. That is a hell of a lot of hats. You are, you're an author. I didn't run down the list, but you are also an author. You flip houses, you run Airbnbs. It's one hell of an extensive resume. You have a lot going on to keep you busy running multiple businesses. So how do you find the time for all of this? And how do you prioritize and how important is prioritization and organization to you? Honestly, it's huge. Staying organized <laughs> is honestly probably always on my goal list is to become more organized. I feel like I do overall pretty well. People ask all the time, like, how do you do it? And that's a lot that you're juggling. And it is, but I find gratitude in each component of my life. And I learned very early on in my recovery that being able to categorize things and give equal attention to each area of your life is very important. I feel like it's easy to put all your focus on one area and then everything else kind of falls out. So I've been privileged to be able to understand that process of what it looks like to be able to say, okay, I'm going to give equal amounts of time to all these areas in my life that are important to me. And that's kind of how I organize my day, my weeks, my months, and it works out overall pretty well. Excellent. And so with all the hats you wear, I'm curious, what does your morning routine look like? My morning routine has gotten earlier and earlier. (laughs) I wake up about 4.30 every morning, usually five, six days out of the week, and I have found that's my me time. I've been doing that consistently for a little over a year. It's been constantly trying to figure out new ways of functioning because I started everything with one child who was not even a year old. And then you throw a second child into the mix and then a third (laughs) child into the mix. And just when you think you've got it figured out, now you're up in the middle of the night nursing a baby again. And now you've got three of them to tend to. So it's constantly been a learning curve. And I feel like putting my personal health and fitness and me time was always a challenge because I mean, and naturally you can't always put you first when you have newborns. That comes first and you sacrifice some of your personal time during that phase because that baby needs you more. And I did that and I did a really good job at putting the babies first. And so once my little one was a little older, I was like, okay, I really got to be able to balance all of this. And I have to put myself first because my job is such a mentally exhausting career that for my own mental health, it's very important. So I wake up really early before the world's really woken up (laughs) and I head to the gym. I sit in the sauna. I sit there in peace and quiet and just have my gratitude list. I don't really write it down, but I just 
process it and set my intentions for that day. Day by day tends to be a lot easier than trying to set it for a week or two yeah. weeks personally. But that's yeah. kind of what my morning routine looks like. And then I'm home before the kids wake up. So I'm able to calmly come into the house, <laughs> wake everybody up, start breakfast versus, oh, shoot, we're running late. I'm barely getting out of bed myself. Everybody hurry, wake up, eat, put your shoes on and get out the door. <laughs> <laughs> So it's a smooth process, I think, for all of us. And I think my kids can also appreciate that I've already got my day started, which makes it for a smooth, calm morning for everyone. Yeah, a start, a smooth, calm, relaxed start to the day. Yes, definitely. What drives, motivates, and inspires you to keep going and excelling at all that you do, Sherry? Well, I was in a place in my life where I was an addict and I didn't really have any goals or inspiration during that time. I was just trying to survive. And at that time, surviving meant not being sick off of opiates. So that's all I could really think about is how am I going to just stay well for the next 15, 20 minutes? And that's what my day consisted of every single day. So there was a lot of personal destruction that led to lack of hope, lack of inspiration, lack of motivation. And so today, you know, it's one of those things that you never think you're going to be able to get through. And when you're able to get through it, you don't take life from for granted. When today I count my blessings and that in itself motivates me that, okay, if I was able to overcome something that I felt was impossible and that was going to be the rest of my life, the fact that I am able to provide a comfortable and beautiful house for my three children and I have the ability and freedom to wake up at 4.30 in the morning after a restful night's sleep and go to the gym and feel great and tackle the day, that in itself motivates me every single day and I have the amazing ability to help people through my business. And so I work with a phenomenal team of people and professionals and together every day we're battling against addiction to help people in need that are struggling with the same thing I struggled with 12 years ago. And that's a beautiful thing to me. It motivates me every day to push hard, be better, because I'm trying to show up for others who at that moment don't feel like they can show up for themselves. That is a beautiful gift that you're giving people and you overcoming your own struggles and addictions to then turn around and use your struggles and what you've been through to give such a beautiful gift to others who are going through the same thing, I think is incredible. Thank you. I, I'd love to know what you were doing for a living before making the jump into entrepreneurship. That's It's funny you ask that because I look back on things and for many years I felt, which it definitely contributes, right? Having a passion for what your career is definitely helps you succeed in that career and be motivated and hungry to continue on or go higher, or do more, yeah. whatever that might look like for somebody. And so for the longest time, I'm like, well, I'm successful and I've been able to do all of this because I'm so passionate about it. And definitely majority of it is true. And that's why I'm successful. But the other part of me is learning at a very young age. I mean, I started my company at 24 years old. That's really young. Wow. I was just trying to figure life out. And so I'm diving into this career because of my own personal journey and passion, but then starting to see the transition of, okay, once you put the business hat on, your passion as an interventionist, as a counselor, as an admissions coordinator, that's still part of it. But you step away from that because now you have a role as a business owner. Right. And that comes with a whole other set of skills and tools that you have to learn and acquire. And I started looking back on that process back to answer your question is what I did before. I always worked since the age of 12 and I had numerous jobs. My very first job at 12 years old was working at horse stables and cleaning horse stalls and feeding horses. And even in the rain, I mean, I'm 12 years old. I don't yeah. to work in the rain. No. <laughs> not forcing me to do that job. But to me, it was important and it was my responsibility. So I showed up for it, even in those circumstances. I wasn't one to say, oh, it's raining. I can't go today. Yeah. Um, Still show up in a hood at that young age. And I did my job and I worked in retail, always loved communicating, working with people, helping people. I started working in a dental office at 15 years old. And I did 
dental work for about seven years, as well as worked in restaurants as a server. So I was like 17, I think I went to school to be an RDA, which is registered dental assistant. I was the youngest girl in the class and I was motivated to get my RDA. It was always a challenge for me. What has someone not accomplished? I'm going to accomplish it. And those are things that I look back on today. It took me many years to look back. You know what? I've always had this mindset. This isn't new since I started my company. Had it since 12 years old. I'm just now able to recognize it more. And same with serving. I wanted to work at the next restaurant that consisted of more chaos and see how much more can I put <laughs> on my plate and how much more can I accomplish? Okay, I got five orders, six orders at one time. How fast can you get it done? Yeah. So I was always personally challenging myself in my own ways in different careers, which has developed into the multitasking mindset that I. I'm able to achieve today in my careers. So it's always been helpful, but I definitely feel it started at a younger age than I realized. Incredibly strong work ethic. That's for sure. Holy shit. Now only everybody (laughs) can have that worth of careers today because boy, have things changed. (laughs) Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about what Bright Future Recovery is all about and how you came up with the name for the business? So Bright Future Recovery, I to call it today a home away from home, mom and pop detox residential facility. And though that might sound maybe alarming to some people, I don't want to go to a medical detox that's mom and pop. Uh, to <laughs> me, the way I, the reason I categorize it in that way is that nowadays it's rare that there are facilities such as Bright Future Recovery personally owned and ran by an individual who is very involved with their team, who shows up to cook if the cook's out sick, who shows up in scrubs to help with admissions if, you know, a tech is out, who wears numerous hats and shows up for their team. Nowadays, there's a lot of large corporations and we work closely with those corporation companies and they have great things to offer their clients and their care. But I feel it's what separates us and what's different and unique is that we are here to help people and alter the program to that individual's needs. It's not like this is what we do. If someone comes in and they're needing something different or they're needing a little bit more one-on-one or they go walking, we walk with them. We're able to make those policies and procedures that are going to go the extra mile for our clients as well as their families. And I feel like that's definitely what's made it unique. The name Bright Future Recovery, it's funny. I always want to laugh when I think of how did you come up with the name? Because the first thing that comes up when I think of the name is the logo. And the logo definitely looks like it was created by a young (laughs) 24-year-old. And I look at it now and I love it, of course, because it's sentimental to me. But I ask my family, I'm like, why did you say that this was a good logo? I mean... (laughs) It's screaming child. I should have had an adolescent program with the way that logo looked. (laughs) We're like three logos in now at this point. It's changing. But Bright Future for me is, I always tell my clients, yes, everyone hears, there's the light at the end of the tunnel, right? With any goal that we personally have. And so I let my clients know, I know it feels impossible right now, but there really is. And if I could pave the road and I can do it for you, I would because it really is bright at the end of it. It really is an amazing future if you can get through this challenge, this hurdle, the hardest thing that you're ever going to do in your life. It is the most rewarding thing at the end. So that's how I came up with the name. And yeah, I mean, Bright Future Recovery, we go by BFR. It's my baby and we've expanded into a second location and that one's Avila Heights. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So we are able to help a lot of people with our small 18 bed facility. And that's what the goal is, right? That's part of what we're all here for is to help each other and support each other. I think it's amazing. The work you're doing is phenomenal and so inspirational, Sherry. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now, I know through previous conversations that you and I have had, you decided to get in this line of work you're in now as a result of some of your own personal struggles and healing journey. Can you share a little bit about your journey and your struggles that you went through? Yeah. So when I was younger, I would say overall, I was a good kid. I mean, I grew up in a great family home, amazing mom who was a single parent. So it was very difficult for her, but she's amazing. She worked hard to provide a good life for me and my siblings. And 
raised in a Christian household and great morals, love, respect. No, I never was raised around any addiction, didn't see any of that as a child. Did good in school overall, but I definitely feel I had that personality that was a little bit on the daring side, always pushing the limits down to try this, down to try that. (laughs) And at the time, you can associate that with being a normal teenager and a kid. And that quickly led to trying things that were not going to be very good. And so I had, after it was after high school, I was working in a bar setting and I was in a relationship, that relationship ended and I wasn't able to really cope in healthy ways. And that led to trying prescription pills and those prescription pills quickly led down a bad path. And that's when the Oxycontin days were very popular and it was destructive. And I'm thankful I look back on it now. It was short-lived. It's hard because I have so many clients that come through my doors that are young that remind me of myself. And I'm like, you've got to get this now. You're young. You got your whole life ahead of you. And then I have clients who have been struggling with it for 20, 30 years. So I am thankful that my addiction was short-lived. But it's scary because when I say short-lived, it's because every consequence that could possibly happen with addiction happened in that short time frame. Lots of legal consequences. And that was really just making my addiction harder and harder to hide and lie about. And But I'm also thankful because I don't know I was going so hard with it that I feel like it would have taken my life. I feel like those legal consequences were constant interventions for me. It was intervening and making it harder. And now as an interventionist, what our goal is to unplug all those outlets that's holding somebody's addiction up and knocking down all those crutches to where getting help sounds appealing at that time. It was getting to that point for me where my consequences were becoming exhausting. And it was like, stop doing what you're doing or take me because I can't keep living like this anymore. When that was was a scary place for me to be because I had always loved life. I was a happy girl growing up and I love family. I love friends. I love laughing, socializing. So to be so alone in such a dark place to where you're contemplating life and hoping that a drug would just take you from this earth is a really terrifying place to be. And so I was fortunate enough that I had my mom care enough to call law enforcement on me. And they ended up arresting me around the corner from one of my best friend's baby showers. And I remember I just came out of the cul-de-sac. Why are they pulling me over? What could I possibly have done? So they said traffic stop, whatever. But really then I found out that my mom had actually called on me and she was so terrified to admit that to me. So terrified. And now I hear that with so many other families. I don't want them to hate me. I am so scared to kick them out of my house. I am so scared to call the cops. But I look back on it and till this day, I will randomly hug my mom. Actually, I just did on Saturday. (laughs) We were on vacation with our family and I hugged her and I just said, thank you for sending me to rehab. Thank you for fighting for me when I couldn't fight for myself. And thank you for calling the cops on me because that's what it took to save my life. That last moment was it for me. It was, this is your opportunity to change. This is your chance to give it your all, do something different, try. And so detoxed in in jail, which was a horrific experience for me. And I Five days too long, I just, jail was not a place for me. It terrified me. It's scary when it doesn't scare people. But for me, it was absolutely terrifying. So I joke till this day. I'm like, I don't know if it was rehab or jail that got me sober. (laughs) Or the combination of them both, I'm sure. But it really was an eye opener. And I knew that I did not want that to be the new cycle for myself And so when I had the opportunity to go from jail directly to a rehab program, I was like, sign me up. I don't care where I'm going or what I need to do. 
I'm going to give this a try. And I did. It was the hardest thing. Every day was a challenge. I really struggled. My emotions were all over the place because I was numbing them for so long. So I remember just crying over a colored lipstick that my mom sent me as a package. <laughs> Little <laughs> things. And remembering seeing that the trees looked so green because they look so dull for so long. You don't pay attention to your surroundings. Yeah. yeah so I, my program then was seven months long. Okay. Which is a challenge we face now that treatment's usually about 30 days. And uh, it was the best thing that I've ever done. I look back on it and I have some amazing memories through that process. I really took that time to learn about myself and gain tools to apply to my life that I wasn't applying to help me get out of bad situations or be able to confront life issues as they happen. And I'm not perfect by any means. I've made mistakes, but I know how to recognize things that I've done, take responsibility and change it immediately before it can be any more destructive. So that's a little bit about my journey and the process. And now here I am fighting against <laughs> addiction <laughs> and the fight on war and war on fentanyl is huge right now. So. Yeah. You must have been pissed with your mom at the time or were you grateful even then and that gratitude came later? That's a great question. I was very, ang- well, I didn't know at the moment. I didn't know that she had called on me. I thought I really did have a traffic stop, but During the process of treatment, I was so emotional and my feelings were all coming back. And when you're using, especially opiates, it really just numbs everything. And so I had realized, my goodness, what have I done to my family? I'm hurting right now. I can't imagine how they're feeling. So for the longest time, I didn't even have a family visit. I refused family visits because when I had my first family visit, I wanted it to be when I was strong enough to say I'm sorry without breaking down and completely losing it and crying. And so it took me some time and my family was getting concerned, like, why doesn't she want to visit? I was just too emotional and so ashamed. So when they had finally come to visit me and I was able to sincerely apologize, there was already healing at that time. So when she did express, have something to share with you that I've been holding on to, and she broke down crying and guilt, I just was first shocked and then secondly, quickly grateful. And I hugged her and said, that was the best thing you could have done for me. So please don't be so upset because I'm healing right now. And I feel better than I have in years at this moment because that phone call that you made. Incredible. That's incredible self-awareness on your part to know that you had to go through the healing journey before you could bring your family in to meet with them. And I think it's absolutely, what an incredible story. Just beautiful. Now, were there any relapses for you, Sherry? Or was it just that one time you went into rehab and that was it? That was it. I That one program, I never had to go back to another program. I'm so thankful for that. And it's hard because that's part of a lot of people's journey. Yeah, you, you know? hear a lot about relapses, right? Totally. And I'm sure you see it all the time. I see it all the time. And it's hard because it's almost one of those things that when you have somebody sitting there, because a lot of times it's like I sit there and I'm like, I could relate. I understand. I've been there. I've done that. I get it. But then I have a client who's been to 15 programs and I have a brother who's been to numerous programs as well. So I can speak as a sister with him. You don't understand. And yes, I do. No, you don't. You've been to one program. The weird thing that he has always told me too is you're not really an addict. I'm like, what do you mean I'm not an addict? I was an mm. opiate addict. I was a heroin addict, an IV yeah. user. Yeah. Yes, I was. And he said this one thing to me, and it's kind of always stuck, and it's made me question. And some people may look at this wrong because there's so many different outlooks on recovery and whatnot. Is He said, no, you tried the wrong substance and got hooked on it, and you needed help getting off. And I found that very interesting because I'm like, a part of it is true, especially with opiates. I mean, I look and I, you know, help treat so many athletes and professionals who've been injured and start taking prescription pills and now they're addicted and now they're finding themselves in treatment. Right. And it could have quickly downhill spiraled did the same journey that I had. And then some situations it has. It went from prescription pills and it led to opiates. They go to treatment and then that's it. And I always found that interesting because I find, I look at my brother and it's like addict behavior in so many different ways other than just substances. Right. It's not always about substances. It's about the behavioral traits associated with them. And so I'm very grateful and I'm thankful. And what I've used with that is 
how can we change the outlook on that for the client going through the process, whether it's their first time or their last, we want to make it their last time or their 15th time in treatment. And so I've used my journey with that one time in treatment and said, I was lucky and blessed enough to be put in a program with the modality that was right for me, that my mom called enough places that had so many different types of programming and said, this is the one my daughter needs. It was so hard, Brad. I mean, that it was a different type of program. It was different than most programs today. But I'm thankful for that because it was really challenging. And so when clients come in now, I try to look at what have they done in the past that has not worked and what can we do differently? If they've never been to a 12-step program and they've been to all these wilderness programs or whatnot, I'm going to suggest we should probably try a 12-step program or vice versa. If they've been to 10 different 12-step programs and they can't stand the 12 steps, well, guess what? Let's try a different program. 12-step program, they're putting the shield up. They're not for it. It's not clicking. And that's the beauty of recovery is I feel like there are just so many different avenues. There's so many different ways. And I really feel like we should be shining light on that because all of our programs are so different. Yeah. Well, not everyone's addiction is the same. Everyone deals with things differently. It's not a one size fits all, as you mentioned previously. Your Mm -hmm. program, your center is not a one size fits all because everybody's different. You have to customize it to the individual. Right. Definitely. How have these experiences helped shape the Sherry you are today, both personally and professionally, do you think? I feel it's, I'm constantly learning. I feel like I'm constantly learning. I think that one, going through the process at such a young age and finding recovery so young has been great in the sense that anything that's challenging, I'm able to deal with and cope with in a healthy way because I learned those tools at a young age. So Mm -hmm. some things that at my age, I had not yet experienced, right? Like a loss of a family member, all those things that you don't start going through until you start getting a little bit older. I feel like because of the tools that I have, I've been able to process the struggles that life has sometimes. I feel that I've also had to get wise very young and that's pros and cons. There's a lot of things that I've already experienced through my professional career that some will never experience in a lifetime. And that's so many people look at my life or other people's lives who own businesses and think, wow, it's look what they have, look where they're going. They're on this trip. They're doing this, they're doing that. And it's, I have to enjoy my life because behind the scenes, I'm not going to go on Facebook or Instagram and talk about the letter I just got because this family wants to sue me because their kid relapsed or my staff's calling me because there's plumbing issues under the house and we need to evacuate all the clients and we need to fix this issue. There's things I've had to learn about business that I have had zero desire to learn about. (laughs) I I never realized I'd have to obtain and have so many different attorneys and lawyers in so many different areas of my company. That to me has been just absolutely crazy. And so there's been a lot that I've learned. And as I've gone through the process of difficulties, and then I come across a new difficulty that I've not yet faced before and it's new to me and I get that nerve wracking feeling inside and I want to curl up and cry. I feel like my backbone has been straightening more as these struggles come my way because I've been able to get through all these challenges over the years and I'm still standing. I'm like the ones that I thought were going to break me starting with my addiction did not And if I can get through that, I can get through everything. Even if it's hard, you have to come up with a solution. You have to stay strong. It's okay to cry, of course, but that's been a big part of the process for me is being able to accept those challenges. Yeah. And be okay with talking about it. It's hard. A lot of things that I deal with, I can't talk about, or I can't defend myself. If a client goes in, I used to take Google reviews so personally, and (laughs) I used to want to be like, that's not fair because that's not true. And that is not what happened. And I've gotten so much better. And so for personal gain and growth, I feel like that's one area I've grown the most with is just being okay 
with what is, and I'm such a people pleaser, but also accepting that whatever they're going through that they're trying to reflect on to me is not my problem. It's not my yeah. issue. And that is a continued work in progress for me. I'm getting well, better. I, I think that's something that we all work on. Everyone, we're constantly evolving. We're constantly growing as human beings. So the work is going to be constant. We're always going to have to do work on ourselves and that's okay. That's part of the process. We don't get to the end where, okay, I'm all done. I don't have any more work to do. It's always there. You've always got to work on yourself. It's just varying degrees, I think, and different things that we have to work on because Mm -hmm. of new things that come up or old things that come up, whatever it is. But that work is constant. It never stops. Right. What would you say was the biggest or most valuable takeaway or lesson for you through these experiences? Most valuable takeaways and lessons I've had through my journey is gratitude. I mean, I, people are probably like, oh my gosh, if Sheree says gratitude one more time, (laughs) (laughs) but it's true. I say it so much, but think of how many people out there that are not thankful. They don't have gratitude. They're constantly chasing something they don't have. They're constantly looking at things they aren't or that they want to be and that they want to have. And I don't live my life that way. Sure. I may look at somebody who I'm like, man, that's inspirational. I'd love to have that, but I am so in the moment And I am so thankful for what today is. I am grateful for this moment. I'm grateful that I'm able to hop on here with you today. I've already had my workout done. I've already had my eyelash appointment done. (laughs) My kids are already fed breakfast. And I'm like, what time is it? Oh, it's not even lunchtime. That's a great feeling. So I have a lot of gratitude on just being able to be. Beautiful. I love that. Yes, in the moment. It's important. We all need to have gratitude for the smallest little thing. The fact that we have a roof over our head, the fact totally. that we wake up in the morning. It's the little things. We have to express that gratitude. It's very important for sure. I agree. Sherry, what lights you up or inspires you the most about the work that you do? Seeing people heal, seeing people accomplish, seeing people win, seeing them get better seeing them brighten up. I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah. Every day it brings tears to my eyes when I see a client who looks so much better and it's only been four days. I mean, that's inspiring to be able to show them themselves the progress that they made. I Mm -hmm. gained benefit from. I love seeing people feel good and get better and accomplish their goals. And it motivates me so much to keep going. And that's with my clients. Another area that I love is I love mentoring. I really do love being a mentor. I've leaned on and have depended on mentors my entire journey. Since day one, I was inspired. I depended on the people who had a day longer than me, two weeks longer, two years, and I leaned on them for my own self and my recovery and even outside of my process of a program early on in my career, I leaned on professionals who had a program a year longer than me, five years longer than me, business people who've had business for 20 years, business personnel who had numerous lawsuits when I was facing my first one. So I've always needed a mentor. I continue to seek help and growth from other people who've already experienced it or who are already at a place that I am goal-driven to be in my future. So I really enjoy mentoring my team and I love seeing my staff grow. I love it. Nothing makes me happier to see them like, wow, you've been with the company for almost nine years. You've been with the company for six years and look where you are today. You're now a program director of both facilities when you started off as a detox tech. And I love working with my team through the process of how to grow, how to gain more in their careers and supporting all their goals, whether that's staying with this organization or expanding into their own company or going back to school to become a nurse or a doctor, whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, I really am inspired by all of that. Now on the flip side of that, what would you say is one of the most challenging parts of the work you do? I'm like, okay, the most challenging, not all the challenging, the most challenging, challenging. (laughs) (laughs) which is hard because I feel like you can interview me three times, four times in a year and you might get a different answer based on situations that are the moment, right? I definitely feel that 
being an employer with employees is very challenging for me. It's yeah. very hard because I, again, I'm not perfect, but I'm very open to constructive criticism. So mm-hmm. if I make a mistake, I am totally open to hearing about it and how I can improve. I'm constantly taking courses and CEUs and I'm educating myself and taking leadership classes and trying just to be this better person. I'm very giving and I take care, good care of my team. And so when we get employees who come in and their intentions are ill and they want to attack and they want to take all that you have for one reason or another, I find that to be the most challenging, especially being in the state of California where it's automatically sided with that person. And no matter what the reality is of the situation, we are instantly at fault, even if we did nothing. And that part for me is very hard and having to, as we grow, being okay with what other people are thinking. I really look up to the people who are like, I can care less what anyone thinks of me. I'm like, man, <laughs> I really wish I could be that way because I'm not. It's, I care. It's I tough. love to get along with people. I love to work with people. So when yeah. someone's looking at me and just doesn't like me or my company and wants to just completely bash me and my company for whatever reason, I just really struggle with that. So anybody who's listening and who has tips on that, please let me know. It's hard. Yeah, it is for sure. Absolutely. Addiction can carry quite a stigma. So how do you work to overcome the stigma associated with addiction and promote understanding within Bright Future Recovery and the broader community? So I don't know so much about the stigma with addiction as more as I would say mental health. I feel like if we start breaking the stigma on mental health, which I feel society is actually doing a lot better with that today, it could it, it's helpful because I feel like so many people looked at mental health as a sickness. And yeah. if you use the word mental health, it's a negative, not a positive. Mm-hmm. And I feel like today, today we're I know that Shining light of taking care of our mental health has been such a positive for our society. And sure, we're faced with a lot more issues nowadays with social media and comparisons and all of these things. But I feel like all of that kind of plays a huge role into substance abuse. And I feel that if we as a community start educating more and speaking out more, we can make a difference before it gets to that point. Yeah. I'm a firm believer that we need to start with our youth. I mean, there's mm-hmm. not enough. I mean, there's some stuff out there, but there is not enough for our children to educate sure. them. I mean, these poor kids are faced with, I mean, the songs today versus the songs in the 90s when I was listening to music is just night and day. And it's awful. That's the music that our children are listening to. Mm. And it's drugs, it's guns, it's this, it's that. And so their minds are just developing and they're hearing all of this. And if they don't have a resource at school or their parents or their family educating them on what this stuff is, they're going to start becoming curious and they're going to lean towards the wrong people to find out what this stuff is. Someone who may think that it's cool and then you're not cool if you're not participating. So I really feel what we need to do is educate our youth, be open and honest with them about taking care of their mental health. How do you deal with with anxiety and depression, even if we're changing words like nervous and sad at a younger age. So I feel like that definitely would help break the stigma of what we're dealing with today. Well, I think we need to start, everything starts with conversation. We need to start talking about this stuff, first of all, and shining a light on it by speaking about it. We need to have those difficult conversations that people don't want to have. And unfortunately, yeah, there's people that don't want to have them, but they need to be had because if we don't talk about it, nothing's going to change. Right. So that's where it starts is conversation. Yes, with our youth. Absolutely. They need the help and we need to do that for them. And so how does your recovery center address mental health challenges and what role does mental health play in the recovery process? So we, I mean, we look at it two ways. So we have it on a clinical level where we are assessing individuals to see what it is that they are going through, what may have 
started the substance abuse, whether it's trauma and that's big T, little T. Is it trauma from childhood? Is it self-induced trauma, which a lot of our clients have through their own process of addiction? They've caused their own trauma and looking at different things, co-occurring disorders, whether there's secondary addictions and gambling and sex addiction and different things like that, and really trying to assess what it is that they're going through and how we can help them on a clinical level through individual and group sessions with our clinical team. And then there's the experiential outings that we provide. And especially in our Avila location, we do a lot of activities there. Lots of kayaking, hiking, pottery, just things to get outside and get outside of their mind and not so constantly just doing groups and whatnot. But I have found that's very beneficial for our clients to engage in while they're in our care so that they are finding the love and joy of those activities sober that they can carry on with that once they leave our program. We're seeing a lot of success with that. So we really try to incorporate different things for them on a clinical level as well as experiential. Of course, addiction not only affects the individual who's going through it, but as you mentioned with your mom, and it also affects the family. So how does your center involve and support the families of individuals in recovery? So we try to support them in different ways, depending on, I mean, some families have a lot of insight and have already been through the process and are very familiar with healthy boundaries and what it is that they need to do. With those family members, we tend to work more as a team. Okay. Okay, let's set up a game plan get our ducks in a row. What's A, B, C, and D? What does that look like? And how can we come together to make that happen? Then we may have a family member who's never been through the process, just found drugs in their 25-year-old's room, don't even know where to start, don't even know what rehab is. And with those families, we really like to educate, start there because it's a lot to take in when you know nothing about addiction or drugs and you are just like, oh my goodness, it's like crisis mode. So really just being of support to those ones and just being an open book. That's what I tell my families. I am an open book. Ask me anything. And I have (laughs) a huge list of resources to help in any area that we need. I'm sure. Um, And so really educating, listening, understanding goes a really long ways. And then being able to recognize some things that families might be able to do to support them. Maybe there's some personal changes that the family needs to make as well. And explaining to them that this is a family effort. It's not just the individual. How can we all be of support? What changes can we make within the household that's going to better support them when they get through this process and return home into the next phase of their recovery? And so really just trying to get everything lined up and set up for them. Sometimes we have to incorporate some family sessions and Mm -hmm. getting everybody on the same page, or sometimes the clients want to address certain things with their spouse or their parents that need the assistance of a therapist. So we will incorporate that as well. I love it. Very well-rounded. It's amazing to involve the families. I mean, they're such a big part of it. So it's important that they are involved in every step of the way. Absolutely. Success and recovery varies for each individual, of course. How do you define success and measure success within your center? And what success stories stand out to you? I feel measuring success is different for everybody. I have a hard time when if somebody calls a facility and asks, what's your success rate? And they're like, oh, 95%. And to me, I'm like, on what? (laughs) 95% (laughs) what? Because I know my families are calling and they want to know how successful is your program going to keep them sober forever. Right. It's impossible to measure. Yeah. You can't, right? But what we can say is like how many have succeeded through the detox process and have continued care through residential, through PHP, through outpatient, sober living, case management, and committed themselves to an entire year of recovery. And so how we like to measure, we do alumni calls. We are calling our clients. We are asking how they're doing. We're checking in with their family, seeing how long they have sober, if they've had a slip up, how we could be of help, what we can do for them to better support them. And so for me, I feel 
even if somebody just hit 60 days and they're back home and they're working again at that level of recovery, so fresh in it, to me, that's success. If somebody has hit five years and they were a constant relapser for 15 years, I mean, that's a huge success. So we try to measure it with where they're at and be of support if they're struggling. And the other question you had. What success story stands out to you the most? There are so many. I'm (laughs) I'm sure. So well, but one that sticks out the most, I would have to say, is a client who was a local homeless man and always really happy all the time, always had a smile on his face given the circumstances. And I had spent a couple of years just getting to know him, Mm -hmm. giving him a coffee, talking with him and let him know, hey, if ever you want help, let me know. Yeah, I'm here to help. I mean, that's one thing about Bright Future Recovery is yes, we're a private program. We're not state funded. But we will absolutely scholarship where we can. We always have. We always will help where we can when somebody does not have the resources, really wants the help. And so finally, he came to my office and the office next door called and said, okay, he's here and he's looking for you. And I'm like, what? I'm like, okay, I'll be right there. (laughs) He's like, I'm ready to do this. And as a team, I contacted his probation officer. I contacted his family, took him in on a scholarship, and he did really well. We had a slip up as that's mm. part of some people's process. Yep. When he did, he called me immediately and was like, I messed wow. up and I need help again before this gets worse. So we got him back through the process and he's doing great today. He's incredible. He's still in a sober living out of the area. Staying local was not good for him and his case. Right. And he's doing great. And so that one sticks out to me because he was homeless for seven years. For some individuals to, and what I can say with society, and there's a stigma right there, is they look at the ones that are homeless as almost a lost cause. Yep. And I look at the ones homeless who just haven't had the opportunity yet. And those are the ones that I really want to help even more. You know, because it's okay. You can accomplish something from this. I know you can. If you can survive these streets like this, I mean, with the support and help, let's see what you can soar. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Now, you just mentioned funding and you're not state funded and whatnot. So obviously funding can be a challenge. So how does your center navigate funding challenges and what steps do you take to ensure sustainable operations? That's always a challenge for me. I think I probably stress on that almost on <laughs> a daily sure. basis. I'll never forget when we first opened, my licensing analyst at the time, he had called me and he said, Sheree, I want to give you just a piece of advice if you're open to it. I was like, yeah, absolutely. He's sweetheart, you're going to have to start charging if you want to keep your business open <laughs> because I was taking everybody in for free. Yeah. I would say, okay, this is our daily rate, but if you can't afford it, I'll do what I can. I'm like, gosh darn it. You have to stay strong with what it costs to come to treatment because that was always really hard for me. Because you want to help people. Of course. I mean, I wish sometimes I was state funded and I could just save the world and everyone who called me and said, sure, come on in. That's probably the hardest part of our job is we can't. So as long as we have the resources and my team's able to direct them to a program that can assist them. But for us, we definitely help where we can. If somebody cannot fully afford our program, we'll work with them as best that we can. And yeah, I mean, we definitely. Well, what did, okay. So let's, sorry, Sheree, what did you do with that homeless gentleman? Obviously he didn't have money to pay for the program. So in those cases, you just take them on and you eat, you absorb the cost. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And we do that all the time. <laughs> wow. Or my biggest thing. So, I mean, full scholarships are great and yeah. people appreciate, but what I would say that we do that's really unique that a lot of programs do not do is if we have some that comes in with insurance mm-hmm. and insurance is a constant battle. I mean, I kid you not, we'll get somebody in who clearly needs the help and yeah. it's crazy because it's almost like a case manager basis. Oh, right. we got this one. We know that we're going to get some days for them. Oh, oh we got so-and-so. Everybody prepared for a five-day authorization. To me, that's crazy because now yeah. it's not about the client. It's about whoever's taking this case on. But 
But that's a reality that we're facing and a challenge that we have. And receiving payouts is a whole other issue. There's times we don't receive anything. (laughs) I'm sure. For two things that we do that I feel is very unique is one, if insurance decides to step them down to a lower level of care unexpectedly and a client was wanting to do a 30-day program, that is a goal for them. I really want to do 30 days of residential and insurance stops covering them at 24 days. We do not discharge our client unless they have a really solid plan of where they're going next and we're doing a smooth door-to-door transition. We will not kick somebody out because their insurance authorization ran out. That breaks my heart when a client says, did I get more authorization? Did I get more authorization? Am I going to get kicked out? And it's like, where were you that put that trauma on you that insurance is going to run out, pack your stuff, you're out of here with nowhere to go. That's Mm -hmm. crazy to me. Well, Um, because you're sending them right back. You know what's going to happen is they're going to go right back to the problem again. Yes. So that's one thing we do. Second thing is I've never hit anybody with the bill after the fact. Yeah. Whatever we collect on the front end that is discussed prior to admission is what we collect. And if that means insurance doesn't pay and two years later, we never were paid by a claim, I'm not going to go send a bill to that right. family and say, hey, hope all is well. Insurance never paid. Here's so a bill. Here's a bill. <laughs> never. And families call and those are questions that they ask because yeah. I got a big bill in the mail from a treatment facility and I that was never discussed prior. So those are two things that I feel like be CFR does that's unique and special because it's more stress in the situation. And of course, we have to be funded because we have to be able to keep operating. Yeah, you have to keep the doors open. Absolutely. Of course. But we will help any way that we can. Well, that speaks to who you are as a human being and an individual who is running a center such as you are. And because you've been on the other side of it and gone through your struggles. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's incredible. And it just shows what a big heart you have. And the work isn't, has got nothing to do with money. It's about doing the work to help people. That's your purpose is helping people. So I think that's incredible. Thank you. Now, shame is a common emotion in addiction, of course. How does your recovery center help individuals break free from the cycle of shame and move towards self-compassion and acceptance? So shame is definitely a big part of the process and taking responsibility in one way or another can always help with that. I mean, till this day, I still have some shame on the things that I've done, but I've forgiven myself. And to some degree, I feel that shame, it's not a bad thing if we have an individual that has a lot of shame. We got to worry when they don't. (laughs) They don't feel bad for anything that they've done or the jewelry that they've stolen and pawned off for $20. I mean, That's a little harder to work through. But when they come in and they feel that guilt and they feel shame for what they've done, that shows a lot about the person that they are. And that shows that they're already ready to start the healing process. And so I really acknowledge that with our clients who feel that way because it's good to recognize that they're feeling that way because they have a lot of love in their heart and they feel bad. So then we go into the process of how do we make amends with that? How would you feel comfortable making amends? Would you like to call them? Would you like to write a letter? Whatever feels comfortable for them to be able to process it. Sometimes it's writing what we've done wrong and throwing it into a fire pit. Either staying quiet or talking about it. So really just figuring out what it is for that individual that can be beneficial. I love letter writing. I think you can get all of your thoughts and emotions on paper without having to change your vocals of anger and upsetness. And sometimes just getting your side out without any feedback from the other Mm. is very powerful, especially for the person that's trying to go through that process. For sure. If you could offer one piece of advice to individuals currently in recovery, what would it be based on your own personal experiences and the work that you do? Keep going. (laughs) Push through the hard days. It's just a day because days are hard, but it's just that day. The next day could be better and I still have hard days and I look forward to going to bed and waking up and starting a new day. So (laughs) that would be my advice. Beautiful. Thank you for that, Sheree. As mentioned, let's we'll go off on a different tangent now. As mentioned off the top, you're an author. What inspired you to actually sit down and write the book and how long did it take you to write? 
So I've always been into writing. I was not good at math or honestly any subject other than English. I probably had a D in just about every subject (laughs) in school except for English. And I feel like even in English, if it wasn't for all the papers that we had to write, I probably would have had a D or an F in that too. (laughs) (laughs) So I did my best to maintain a 2.0 GPA just to stay on the cheer squad. And there were times I couldn't even get that. And I saw that bench more than I'd like to admit. So (laughs) it was really hard for me in school, which is funny because now I love to learn. But I do. I love writing. I love communicating. I love getting my thoughts out there. I feel like it's not only helped me get my feelings out, it's also has inspired and helped other people. And so when I went through this process and I had started the company and I was raising my children and then I was pregnant with my third, so many people were just in awe. Like, how do you do this? And so I'm like, this might be a good time to actually write about it because my life is all about balance and trying to make sure that I'm able to give equally to each area. So when I was pregnant with my daughter, who is now going to be five, I decided to write a book. And actually, the agency that I used was a client of mine when I first started working in the field. And so she got through the process and she had called and was like, hey, I'm actually, this is a new venture that I'm doing. And I'm like, that's funny because I've been trying to get this started. I have my chapters laid out and I just don't have the time. So she assisted me with it. And it probably took us start to finish not too long, about seven months, maybe a little less. And there's this wonderful thing that you don't have to do anymore and put hand to paper. You're able to... (laughs) Share it, yeah. put it out, and then edit it. So I did do that process. Otherwise, hand to paper would have been impossible. And it definitely has been what my life journey has been about of raising the company and raising babies at the same time and maintaining friendships and relationships and marriage and all those things. But I continue to jot down for new books. I want to do a children's book. Now that one, if you were to ask how long that take once that's complete, it's going to be about four years. Cause yeah. I can't seem to finish that one. I keep going back and making changes, but I do. I really enjoy sharing yeah. my personal experiences. If that means it's helping one other person, I'll continue to do so. Which is the common thread throughout your life and the work you do. Yeah. What is the name of the book? Balance, Life Balance. Lessons and Success. Beautiful. Okay. Well, we'll put a link to it in the show notes when we release your episode so that people can grab the book. Cool. To date, what would you say is your biggest high or your greatest win? Biggest high, greatest win. I would say my biggest win today is being a healthy, stable mom for my three children. I am very thankful that I was able to go through my journey before having these precious little babies because I give them my all every way that I can. I try to be as present as possible, not miss a field trip, not miss a school activity. Summers and school breaks get really hard because it's, I want them home. I don't want to send them to a daycare or a summer camp. I mean, if they wanted to, absolutely, but they enjoy their home time when they're so busy with school and sports and all these different traveling that we all the things that we do when they're on break, they love to sleep in and hang out and be at home. And I love that I have the ability to do that with them and work from home. So I'm really thankful that I was able to learn so much before having my children. Yeah. What do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful? Being able to spin 10 plates at one time. <laughs> <laughs> There's that balance. Yep. Multitasking on another level that seems very unrealistic, but <laughs> is my reality every single day. I tell people, I don't think that I'm somebody to look at and be like, well, Sheree can do it. I can do it because sometimes when it comes to recovery, absolutely. But I understand that I have some weird skill sets. Do this and do that. <laughs> it's a challenge, but I definitely feel like I'm thankful for that because I can wake up and have nothing in my calendar 
and I can have a hundred phone calls at once with everything hitting the fan at once at both facilities, at the school, at whatever is going on. Oh my goodness. It's one of those days and just put out all the fires. So <laughs> I'm thankful it. that I'm able to handle that without getting too overwhelmed. overwhelmed yeah. Absolutely. But the ability to, to handle it. Now, speaking of success, how do you define that word? What does the word success mean to you? Success to me means satisfaction. I feel if you're satisfied with where your life is, you've been successful. Whatever that goal is, whether it's a fitness journey or in parenting, career, owning your first home, whatever that might be, if you have satisfaction with where your life is today, you've succeeded. Love it. What would you say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And what was your life like before you learned it? And what was your life like after you learned it? I would say the biggest thing that I've learned is being able to say no. Before learning that, not being able to say no and being that yes girl got me into the situation that I was in. And it put me in a lot of sticky situations that were hard and a lot of regrets because I was constantly putting other people before me. Even if I felt it was wrong, I was trying things that I knew probably wasn't right, but because I was so scared to say no and then be judged. Now I comfortably can say that word no and feel great about it. (laughs) I love it. Nope. Sorry. Not going to do that. (laughs) If it's not going to bring me peace or if it's going to give me anxiety, the answer is no. What is an unexpected blessing or occurrence in your life that you're grateful for? I would say unexpected blessing would be having people show up that believe in me sincerely because... They just do. I feel like I live in a world of a lot of judgment and fakeness. And I think that's for a lot of people and everybody. But through my career, especially, I've met some amazing individuals who are like-minded like myself, who really want to see other people win. And that's been the biggest, I mean, I, unfortunately, I live in a town that there's not a lot of cheerleaders in this town. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because it's a small community, but nobody wants to see other people win, at least not win more than what they're winning. It's always very interesting to me. So I have a wonderful group and community of individuals who are like-minded. And I really appreciate that positive, uplifting encouragement to keep going and being able to call when times are tough and them listening and giving advice and knowing that it's sincere. That's unexpected. I never thought I would have such an amazing group of people that I could count on. And we all need that in life. We need that support. We cannot do this alone. We have to have the support. Yes. Sheree, what does the word empowerment mean to you? Empowerment to me means being able to inspire other people or feeling inspired by others and being able to learn from people who have something that you're wanting to achieve and feeling safe to be able to either show up to whether it's their conference or to their podcast or to call them on the phone. I feel like That's what it means to me is to be able to pick up the phone and walk away and feel inspired. Okay. We're going to jump into a little rapid fire section here. So the next grouping of questions, just be one, two, three word answer type thing. Okay. How would you describe yourself in one word? Caring. What is one thing you love about yourself that is not related to your physical appearance? Giving. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? Love. If you came with a warning label, what would yours say? Spicy. If you could teach the world one thing, what would that be? Patience. What's one thing you want but cannot buy with money? Trust. And that concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. What is one lesson your career has taught you that you think everybody should learn at some point in their life? With it trying to be as positive as possible is you have to just worry about yourself. When it comes to business anyways and, and career, I've been backstabbed a lot. So I've learned to just say less, do more. What is your why? Helping other people, saving other people. If you had the opportunity to sit down and have a one-hour conversation with one woman, any woman in the world, who would it be and why? It has to be a woman. Let's see. Mm -hmm. That's a hard one. Probably would be my great-grandmother. And my why would be because she took 
my grandmother into her care by being her mom and adopting her and taking on that responsibility of pure love without getting too emotional. And I feel you don't have to be blood to gain what other people pass down to you. And I feel like she raised a very strong woman who then had my mom. And I feel like her whole goal and purpose in life as a Christian woman was to have the family that we are today. And if she could see that and see the love that we are helping. So, I mean, they were teachers. And so their purpose in life was to help and to educate and inspire children. And if she knew that her great-granddaughter was doing what she was doing today and that her great-great-grandchildren, my children, have the same goals in mind to help other people, she would be really proud of the daughter that she took in. That is absolutely beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Appreciate that. If you could go back, Cherie, and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? It would be patient and process your thoughts before your actions. Lastly, if you were to deliver your last 30-second speech to the world, your tribe, your corner of the world, your people, Uh what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What words of wisdom would you impart? It would be to have everybody find the love that they have within themselves and their goals and being able to reflect that on other people and for them to see what that would look like. How could what they love and what they're passionate about influence somebody else, empower somebody else, help somebody else. And maybe if we all looked at the world in that way, we'd have a better place to live versus criticizing and judging and breaking things apart and picking pieces apart. And really just everybody has love in their heart. I feel if we just went and we focused on that one thing and wanted to give it to another person, hopefully we could spread that like wildfire. (laughs) Beautiful way to end the interview. Cherie, thank you so much for taking and making the time to be here with me today. Share a little bit about your story, your journey, and the beautiful light you put out into the world through the work you do. I admire your strength and your courage and your resilience for what you have been through and the work you are now doing as a result of your personal journey. I think it's absolutely incredible and so inspirational. You're a beautiful human being, woman, and soul. Thank you so much, Brad. I really appreciate you and everything that you're doing for your listeners. I feel like this is very inspirational and being able to hear other women's backgrounds and what they've gone through and where they are today is something that our world needs. Thank you. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Cherie Ashley. She is the founder and owner of Bright Future Recovery, an author, and last but certainly not least, a mother. Thank you so much for taking, making the time. Once again, I appreciate you. I'm honored to have you as a member of the Empowerography community. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca, follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast, and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.